How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 195 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, well, I can't speak for everybody, but this is certainly the one I've been waiting for for a long time. Kind of like, uh, ever since X-Men number 7, all those months ago. And, uh, I guess well over a year ago in, in publication time, innit? So we got a lot to talk about. So without further ado, let's hop right on in to Way of X number 1. It's had a June 2021 cover date. The story's called... Way of X. Written by Cy Spurrier with art by Bob Quinn. Colors, Java Tartaglia. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Mullahead of X's Hickman. Edits, Andrews Ballesteros. Thomas White Sobolski. Cover price, $5. This one went on sale April 21 of 2021. And we open with Professor X being startled awake by a vision of a strange-looking individual... And it is worth noting that this is a rare occasion where Xavier isn't wearing the Cerebro helmet. So, uh, I guess we can assume he doesn't actually sleep with the thing on. It's nice to see his, uh, his face, uh, for the first time in a very long time. Now, he psychically reaches out to Nightcrawler, uh, and he initially seems rather desperate to get some sort of assistance. But he pulls, he quickly pulls back, um, and he suggests to Kurt that he was just reaching out to wish he and his team luck on their mission in Venice. Now, Nightcrawler ain't buying it, and really, nor should he. He assumes there's something the professor isn't telling him, but doesn't really press the issue. It's worth noting that uh, Xavier is looking at some photos on his dresser at this point, and in particular, one with Gabriel Haller holding their baby boy, David. And also, while looking at these photos, we can see one with his and Lalandra's daughter, Zandra, and I think his and Mystique's from, like, another dimension or something like that. Um, but that's not important here. We're, we're really paying attention to the hauler photo. From here, we get our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters will include Nightcrawler and uh, a whole bunch of uh, X-Men wallpaper. Um, and, and some other folks as well. We got Nightcrawler, Blink, Professor X, DJ, Dr. Nemesis, Exodus, Loa, Magneto, and Pixie. From here, it's an info page, and uh, it's an excerpt from the Book of Redacted, which is uh, my personal favorite gospel. And this is a good one. It's clearly written by Nightcrawler, expressing uh, a bit of the concern that we did see pop up way back in X-Men number 7, like 100 years ago. And uh, we're going to get really deep into this as we move through this issue. There's, there's a lot of this in here, and it's, it's, all, it's all very, very wonderful. Now, back to comics. And we find ourselves at the redacted seminary in Venice with Kurt and his team. Now, it turns out this place has been uh, modeled into something of a uh, hate museum, a museum of hate. 
which is focused on fomenting the old classic fear and or hate against mutant kind. Um, we see several statues of evil mutants here, uh, probably to further drive the point home and help indoctrinate anyone who uh, may feel sympathetic toward the mutants and their, their cause and their plight. And among these statues, we see Apocalypse, Sabretooth, some Acolytes, Dark Phoenix, and Omega Red. Now, Nightcrawler's team is, uh, like I mentioned, X-Men wallpaper. We got Pixie, Blink, Loa, and DJ. They are uh, busy talking about death. Nightcrawler's not here. It's just the kids right now. They're talking about death. And Pixie wonders if they should check in with Kurt, because he's inspecting the rest of the building, trying to figure out exactly who's behind this hate museum here. Now, hearing Pixie's concern, DJ tells her not to be such a Wanda, which I think is going to be an insult I'm going to try to add to my everyday vernacular. If uh, somebody's getting on my nerves or acting a little too precious, I'll just say, hey, don't be a Wanda. Now, Blink suggests that Pixie's only on edge because she's, uh, well, she's kind of a virgin, um, a death virgin, you know? Uh, she hasn't died and been gold-balled yet, and she might be the only one at this point. Um, and, I mean... Can you believe they're actually holding this against her? I mean, this is this is really excellent stuff here. I, I'm this is it's subtle enough, but it's definitely showing how the tone regarding death has changed since Hoxpox here, where Pixie is almost being mocked, or actually in a way being mocked for never having died, never having been gold balled back. It's it's interesting and. Uh, we're going to get more of this as we go along, and I don't know how many more times I'm going to say we're going to get more of this as we go along, but trust me when I say we will. It's going to be very, very fun. Now, it's almost as though the kids are framing death as like a rite of passage or a coming-of-age moment, and uh, Pixie is still quite uncomfortable with uh, the concept here. Loa tells her, hey, ain't no big. Just, uh, you know, think happy thoughts. Think about your favorite food when you're just about to bite it, right? And Pixie's like, well, you know what? My favorite food changes all the time. Yesterday it was sushi. Today it's whatever the hell a cheese toasty is. Um, I'm guessing maybe that's a British thing. Apologies, I guess. Um, and it might seem like there's no reason for, you to, for me to mention this little food bit, but just, just trust me, it will come back again. Now, DJ teases Pixie, saying he bets that she's just scared that the patchwork man will get her. Huh. I hear you asking, who is that? Well... We'll get there. Nightcrawler pops back in, and he asks about the Patchwork Man. He hears the end of this conversation. DJ writes the Patchwork Man off as just a scary story that the kids tell on crack, as in Krakoa, um, without the Oa and not the street drug, though I suppose either one would make sense in this situation. Kurt reveals that he was able to deduce that this place was funded by Orcus. Hey, you remember them? Remember those guys? Huh. In the next room over... We see a bunch of uh, Orcus disciples being indoctrinated. They're being shown a whole bunch of mutant atrocities in order to foment their loyalty to the cause and their hatred toward mutant kind. Now, while Kurt and the kids listen in, another Orcus fellow pops into the hallway from another entry, and he announces very, very loudly that the abominations are among them here, and before we know it, our heroes are surrounded by Orcus-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s-s
combing over. Back to comics, and Kurt's team doesn't seem to have all that much trouble taking down the Orcus goons. Pixie blows some dust at them, which makes them see her as an angel. But then, an Orcus soldier wearing a gas mask bursts in, so the pixie dust is useless. And so, <clears throat> Pixie decides that she's going to make it so the bedazzled Orcus folks experience some crazy trauma. And, well, she walks right up to the gas mask soldier and allows herself to have her head blown off. Nightcrawler is appalled by this, and, and rightfully so, but the rest of the crew applauds Pixie for popping her death cherry. Huh. Now, Kurt takes out the, ca- the gas mask soldier, while the rest of the Orcus goons shiver in the corner because, I mean, they just saw someone they saw as an angel getting her head blown off, so they are, uh, they're kind of done with it. Blink sees the apologetic goons as a sign that Pixie did the right thing. Kurt does not agree. I agree with Kurt. Um, Loa tells him, basically, chill out. Because Pixie will be back back before he knows it. And he's like, well, that's not really the point, is it? And I mean, (laughs) I mean, where has this book been? This is, this is wonderful. This is the kind of stuff we've needed to talk about for like a year and a half now. It's the stuff, it's basically our mailbag in, in sequential art form here. It's wonderful. Now, Kurt says that this is all wrong. But when asked to explain why it's wrong, he can't. Blink tells him to lighten up and reminds him that he used to be fun. Huh, that's, that's, that's the way to open up a series, isn't it? Um, wow, okay. We're going to scene shift here. We're going back to Krakoa. Nightcrawler has summoned Magneto to the Green Lagoon to show him something that he'd found at the Hate Museum. And it's a statue. It's a statue of Magneto posed in a way to evoke the events from X-Men Volume 1, Number 1 from 1963, which we actually just recently talked about in the, X- the Essential X-Lab series, Episode 1, which is available in the archives. And he is in full-on, like, big-horned helmet mode here and is directing missiles. Uh, several classic X-characters are here for the reveal, and they're having a grand laugh at old Magnus. We've got Colossus, Gene, Dazzler, Forge, Bobby, Wolverine, Havoc, Jubilee, and Banshee, among others. And Magneto realizes that uh, this little show is uh, being put on to uh, poke fun at him, basically, and not much more. Info page, and it's a newspaper clipping recounting the events of X-Men number one using some original Kirby art, including the cover image from X-Men volume one number one. The clipping is written in such a way as to uh, humiliate Magneto for losing to a group of children. Back to comics, and Magneto sees this as an opportunity to go, like, full-blown pro-wrestling promo here. He plays it completely straight and, uh, like, almost goes into, like, bloviating, uh, talking about how he's learned from the errors of his past, and they're in a, you know, post-mortal society now. And then he uses his powers to crush the missile part of the statue, and he leaves. Nightcrawler follows and asks, like, what in the hell was that all about? And Magneto turns to him and says, that was a sermon, and kind of throws sermoning in Nightcrawler's face as a priest. And he makes it clear that he did not appreciate the attempt at making fun of him. He suggests that Kurt's time would be much better spent finally getting around to starting that mutant religion he spoke of like a hundred years ago. Kurt hems and haws here, and uh, says that this little attempt at levity was, well, basically just that. A little laughter to counteract the horrors of this place. 
i.e. the Crucible. Magneto smirks, because he was just reminded that tonight is Crucible Night. Kurt says, uh, you know, it's nothing more than murder. And Magneto scoffs at this. He tells Kurt that he's too worried about sinning against his, quote, dusty god, and that he's so hyper-focused on all the negative that he won't allow himself to enjoy any of the positive. And I, I love the fact here that nobody is even willing to humor Nightcrawler's concerns here. He's basically being written off as like a buzzkill, a negative Nelly, right? Despite the fact that he's really the only person here who seems to see the complete picture. He's looking at things good and bad, where everyone, everybody else just, they don't have time to worry about the bad. It's all about the good. It's all about the party. It's all about immortality. And Nightcrawler is, uh, you know, he talked about the cracks in the foundations, right? And he's the one who can see them. And this is... I hope this doesn't sound like I'm gushing too much, but uh, this is good stuff. Info page, and we see the Krakoa of the Pacific and the, you know, the little uh, five sum of islands in the Atlantic, and we also see a redacted pending panel. I'm not sure exactly what this is. Maybe it's Arako, maybe it's Emma's new Faroe Island, maybe it's Island M, maybe it's a Krakoa yet to be discovered. I don't know. Back to comics, and Nightcrawler is approached by a character who we will only know by the name Lost. Now, she is a newcomer to Krakoa and appears to be very, very warped physically. Now, she's been depowered, which we're going to learn quite a bit more in just a, a little bit. She comes to Kurt because she had heard that he was one of the kindly ones here. And we're going to find out exactly what she means by that, and uh, we'll also find out what she actually wants from Kurt in just a little bit. Nightcrawler, uh, he kind of blows her off here. He points her over to the blue building in the distance, the Krakoan welcoming hall, and it's the place where newbies can be, I guess, signed in. Um, now he reminds her that Krakoa is a sanctuary, a safe place, and then he bamps away. Info page, more from the Book of Redacted. It's more about the realness of a mutant resurrection, and these are questions that we've been asking for months now. Nightcrawler, perhaps buying into the idea that he's just not allowing himself to enjoy this new age of mutantum, he asks questions, but then dismisses his own questions and concerns as being stupid. And uh, we learn that there are 23 different religions represented on Krakoa, but there are no churches or places of worship here. Back to comics, and Kurt is listening in on one of Exodus's sermons, and, I mean, we've seen a time or two throughout our coverage here where Exodus is taken to uh, sort of kind of indoctrinating the youth of Krakoa, you know, talking about the Scarlet Witch as the pretender, uh, all the atrocities uh, that humans or flat scans or however you want to call them have done against uh, mutants, um, stuff like that. Here, though, we're in the middle of a sermon, but the kids aren't really paying uh, as close atten attention as Exodus would like to the discussion at hand here. They're... More concerned with talking about the uh, the boogeyman, the uh, the little uh, schoolyard uh, boogeyman, the patchwork man. And Exodus, as you might imagine, is not too pleased about this, and he attempts to redirect the conversation over to the concept of the crucible. Then, Nightcrawler, who's still watching, he, he feels eyes on him, and he discovers that he's being watched by a Cy Spurrier favorite, Dr. Nemesis, who... Oh, God, oh, God, ugh. Oh, gee, he's... Oh, this this is disgusting. Um, 
he has like mushrooms going out of his head. Oh, for F's sake, man, put your hat back on. Nobody wants to see that. I, yeah, I, I don't even want to touch this page. I might throw up. Like you ever, you ever like see like like if you're going through an encyclopedia or something, and you see like a picture, like a giant full page picture of like a big hairy spider or something. And you don't even want to touch the page because it just skeeves you out. Seeing this dude with mushrooms growing out of his head. Oh, god. Oh, let's turn the page here. We're on an info page about the Science Corps. Uh, Dr. Nemesis has petitioned for the formation of a Krakoan R&D unit. We've got several divisions, laboratories, and specialist studies, and uh, it's worth noting they all list Dr. Nemesis himself as being the director, supervisor, and specialist, except for one department, and that department is law and ethics, which, uh, well, if you know Dr. Nemesis, you know Dr. Nemesis. We're back to comics, and it would appear that Nemesis is crediting himself with creating the Miracle Mutant meds that kicked off this whole era, which is all new information for us here, though how true it is remains to be seen. For all we know, he's just blowing smoke. But maybe not. They talk a bit about religion, because, well, that's kind of what we're doing in this book. Nemesis raises an uncomfortable and selective memory-based question. He says that since the Marvel Universe, he doesn't say the Marvel Universe, but since the world is literally full of gods, how come Nightcrawler believes in the only one he's never seen? Which, I mean, Nightcrawler was in heaven not too long ago, right? So, I don't know. Kurt suggests that the not seeing him is what makes him honor his Christian god, but again, I'm pretty sure the Christian god has shown up a time or two in Marvel Comics. Anyway... Nemesis talks a bit about the Dunbar number, which reminds me of any time a teenager discovers like a concept like Schrodinger's cat and tries to shoehorn it into every conversation in order to let people know that he knows about Schrodinger's cat. Uh, now, the Dunbar number is a real thing, and the way Nemesis explains it here is basically what it is. It's the idea that there's an upper limit on how many relationships the brain can handle at one time. And so, society, to be functional, requires abstractions and social rituals in order to hold them together at a more surface level here. Things that can be similar among a people. Things like, if we're talking about Krakoa, the Crucible. The Resurrection Protocols. These are things that unify the people of Krakoa as one. And without such things as this, rituals, customs, a society is at risk of collapse, falling apart. From here, we've seen shift into the Crucible, and we see our new friend Lost in the ring, and her uh, Crucifer is Magneto, and he appears to be absolutely relishing this opportunity to kill someone without recourse. Magneto is just beating the holy hell out of Lost, while telling her it's for her own good. He's actually presenting her with a gift, you see, you know. We know, the, uh, we know the way they spin the Crucible. Now, Lost catches Nightcrawler in the corner of her eye, and she tells him that she wanted him to be her Crucifer, as uh, he's, the, he's one of the kindly ones, right? He would do it probably a little less brutally than Magneto. Um, and, I mean, speaking of Magneto, he is absolutely ruthless here. Lost is on the ground, pummeled, and he demands she get up. You know, you stand... Kurt bamfs in to stop the proceedings, right? Now here, 
There aren't very many missed opportunities in this book, but I found one right here. Kurt Bampson, right? He pushes Magneto off of Lost here, like trying to stop this from going down. And I think it would have been perfect had, when this happened, you have the entire crowd start to boo Nightcrawler, right? Because as we're going to establish here, the crowd is absolutely foaming at the mouth for the Crucible. You know, they love the Crucible. They eat it up. So when you have someone interfere and try to shut it down, it stands to reason they should be booed, right? That doesn't happen here. I wish they did, but, you know, we can't have everything. Now, Lost pulls herself up, and we finally see her without her cloak. She has been wearing a cloak. We have been able to tell that she is warped, right? Now, the, the body is way more warped than we had any idea it was without the cloak, and she kind of looks like skin from Generation X, but even weirder. Now, Magneto manifests a knife out of random shards of metal, and then finally just drives it right through Lost's heart. And the crowd goes wild. Dr. Nemesis scurries in to help Kurt up to his feet, and, you know, Kurt comments that Magneto's actions here don't bother him nearly as much as the adulation of the roaring crowd. And, again, this is something we've been talking about for ages here on the show, and I love that we're finally addressing it on the page Speaking of pages, info page. Now, this is from the desk of Dr. Nemesis. Uh, Simon Spurrier likes Dr. Nemesis, you see. You might have figured that out by now. Now, the observation here is that those who choose to die in the Crucible are jumped ahead in the Resurrection resurrection queue. Nemesis suggests this might wind up, like, almost controlling population in a way, or informing population. It's going to skew the population of Krakoa over time, which would... qualities like strength would be emphasized over others. And he refers to this as prejudicial, easy for me to say, prejudicial resurrection, which is an excellent point, isn't it? Um, I mean, just when we thought our food-for-thought plate was full, right, we get even more... We jump to the next morning, where Lost emerges from her gold ball, having been repowered. But first, Kurt and Charles talk a bit about the religiosity of resurrections. It's worth noting, Xavier claims here to not be religious, which really isn't much of a surprise if you think about it. That said, he does agree with Kurt's observation that there ought to be a form of religious guidance on Krakoa. So Lost hatches, and we finally see her powers at play here. It has to do with gravitational pull which makes everybody present, besides Kurt and Doc Nemesis, violently ill. And by violently ill, I mean power puking everywhere. Literal fountains of vomit. And still, Nemesis's fungal infection is way, way, way worse. Um, and, you know, hey, maybe this has nothing to do with Lost, and everybody just got a good look at Nemesis's head. Because, I mean, that is disgusting. Now, Lost is ashamed of causing everyone to puke, and so she floats away, saying, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the hatchery, Pixie comes out. Now, out of the corner of her eye, she sees the patchwork man, but he disappears as quickly as he shows up. Then, Kurt approaches bearing gifts. Well, a gift. And it is uh, whatever the hell a cheese toasty is. Now, here's the thing, and this is why I mentioned the food earlier. Pixie doesn't remember craving a cheese toasty and only wants sushi. Now, this might not seem important, but I feel like it's worth mentioning, because before Pixie had died, she had changed her mind on what her favorite food was. Right? It was sushi, then it was the nebulous cheese toasty. 
but her last Cerebro backup occurred while she was still digging on the rainbow rolls. This is subtle, but at least to me, it plays into Nightcrawler's concerns that the real version of these characters isn't coming back. Again, it's subtle, and in the grander picture doesn't really mean much, but if we stop and think about it, which, I mean, is kind of what we do on the show, this pixie isn't the same one who died. Like, not completely, not 100%. It's the discontinuity between the pixies that really drives this point home, and that's why I mentioned the food thing earlier, because it is a sure sign that this pixie is going to miss out on experiences that Pixie Prime had. No matter how benign, no matter how mundane, this isn't the same person. You see what I'm saying? Next, Professor X finally decides to confide in Kurt as to what was bothering him. And it comes down to the Patchwork Man, of course. Xavier refers to it as a presence, and likely an Omega-level one at that. Nightcrawler's the one who evokes the name of the mythical Patchwork Man here because, I mean, it's been coming up a lot. Kurt says he'll consider helping out, and that night he preys on it. After going to bed, the patchwork man actually invades his dream. And he doesn't do all that much, he just kind of stands there all weird, freaking us all out. All the while, Kurt hears Lost's voice, telling him over and over that he is one of the kindly ones. Which, uh, I mean, that's a toughie, isn't it? Info page. It's more the gospel of Kurt here, and he's uh, upset that death is treated so trivially, of course. He suggests that he's taken on missions uh, in order to distract himself from digging deeper into his concerns about the Krakoan way of life, or maybe the way of X, if you prefer, if, uh, if that's not going to be his religion, I don't know. But uh, we're getting a, an idea here that he has been just trying to keep himself busy so he doesn't stop to address his, his own concerns. And we saw in a previous info page that he's dismissing his concerns as being silly or stupid or foolish. Back to comics, and we have Nightcrawler visiting Blindfold's gravesite. Now, Blindfold was a young mutant, of course, and she had killed herself during the Rosenberg run, if I'm not mistaken. But in the years before that, it had been established that she had a relationship with the person on our last page reveal here, who is, um, well, it's another Spurrier favorite, Legion, who may or may not be the Patchwork Man, maybe? I don't know if it's a, a little bit of misdirection here or if, in fact, he is the Patchwork Man. Uh, Legion has multiple personalities. Patchwork Man kind of makes sense. I don't know. It's worth noting here that Blindfold is a precog, and the reason she killed herself is that she saw something coming that was terrifying to her, something she didn't want to uh, live to see. And we know that precogs are a huge no-no on Krakoa, which uh, explains why she still has a gravesite to be visited and isn't hanging around with other bits and pieces of X-Men wallpaper in the Academos habitat. But that's where we leave it. Legion shows up, and uh, doesn't look like he's messing around. Next episode, we're looking at the next issue of X-Force. I believe it's X-Force number 19, but that's next time. Right now, let's talk Way of X. Well, hot damn, uh, this was uh, worth the wait. This was a wonderful, wonderful first issue. Um, I just love the fact that these questions that we've been asking for so long are finally showing up on the page here. It's almost like vindication, like, okay, we were right to notice all this stuff here, and the fact that it just wasn't mentioned very often, it made us question ourselves, or at least made me question myself. Like, am I thinking too hard about this? Am I... I don't know, it's, it's interesting because uh, we can almost put ourselves in Nightcrawler's shoes here where 
Like, I mean, we're being offered the uh, the opportunity to read about our favorite characters, and there's never a risk of them dying. But we can't enjoy it because we see the uh, the flaws in that. We see the uh, the precipice that we might be edging up against, and we worry about things like the future. We worry about things like a seat change in creative. We worry about, as I like to put it, walking this back. And Nightcrawler, he's talking about cracks in a foundation, and I think that's wonderful language to use because all of our stories, all of our characters, all of our mythologies need a foundation. And if the foundation is cracked, which this might be, how do you build, right? How do you tell stories? How do you build upon stories? How do you forward stories? How do you let characters grow? If all we're doing is resetting them over and over and over again. These are some excellent questions here. And, I mean, this <laughs> this was a great, great issue here. I can't say enough good about it here. Uh, I think if I were to make a complaint, it would be that Dr. Nemesis's head really, really grosses me out. Um, I wasn't exaggerating where I didn't even want to touch the page to turn it. It's like, oh, get that, get that off here. I suppose as long as he wears his hat in most appearances, I'll be able to get through it. I just hope he does. <laughs> this is very, very foul to look at. Um, let's start at the beginning. Pixie is um, looked at as immature, uh, relatively speaking, because she has not died. And it's so interesting because you look at a group of people, a group of comic book people, of course, Say you got five people, four of them have died, one has not. You'd probably look at the one who hasn't as being a survivor. Like something about that one person who has not died, there's something to respect there. There's uh, self-preservation, there's a respect for life, uh, an appreciation for existence. But it's flipped on its ear here. Where, I mean, I, of course these are children, these are teenagers, uh, adolescents, but they flip the script here to the point where they're mocking her for never having died. As though that was a defect. Like there was something wrong with her for not having died. It's as though she's not trying hard enough. If you don't die, you're not trying hard enough. And so, in, in a way, they peer pressure her into walking into the business end of a shotgun. Which, wow. Um, a powerful scene. A very powerful scene. And when you have a character like Pixie, and we have not seen much of Pixie since Hoxpox uh, started here. We know Glob Herman had a crush on her, like, for five seconds. Uh, we did see her in the Runaways series that we uh, just covered not too long ago. So we know that she's around. She's bebopping around the, uh, the island. But I haven't really thought much about her. She's a comfortable presence, and every time you see her on panel, you do root for her. Or at least I do. And then you have her here, where she you know, basically commit suicide. Um, it, it just to traumatize the Orcus goons who uh, viewed her as an angel. I don't know that that's worth it. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's, let's step back here. Pixie has dust powers, right? Can't she just make them see whatever the hell she wants them to see? Like, if she can make them see that she's an angel, can't she also make them see that she's an angel with its head blown off? Nah, I don't know, but instead, 
she has to actually make it happen here, which I think is in large part to the pressure placed on her by her formerly deceased teammates. And uh, it's uh, it was a, it was a heck of a scene. Um, we don't get scenes quite that powerful very often, and for good reason, because we only we appreciate them more when they're not as frequent. But this was a good one. This was um, very very powerful and. Um, like, like I said, I don't really think about Pixie much, but when this happened, I was like, I felt the loss. And I think we were supposed to. Like, we were standing there just like Nightcrawler, like, this is wrong. This is not the way this should go. And everyone around him's like, ah, chill out. What, what's so wrong about it? And Nightcrawler cannot answer. Because at the end of the day, wrong-headed or not, the kids aren't wrong. You know? It does speak to more of the devaluing of life, um, the disrespecting of the gift of life. Um, but at the end of the day, Pixie showed up at the end of the issue, right? She was jumped ahead in the queue, apparently, because she came back very, very quickly. Now, speaking of uh, jumping ahead in the queue, let's talk about Lost, our new friend here. Now, she was a depowered mutant who approached Kurt to... Do the honors for her But she didn't make that clear And I mean, we've seen in these pages before Where someone goes to another To ask if they'll do them the favor in the Crucible We had Kalisto go to Storm And Storm said, nope, don't want any part of that But then decided to do so, you know We had Cosmar over in New Mutants Asked Danny Moonstar to do it Hopeful that she could be killed And then come back in a less deformed sort of a, sort of a figure, right? And Danny said no here, Lost doesn't exactly ask Kurt to do the favor. She just says, you're one of the kindly ones. To which Kurt was lost in his own thoughts, didn't really put two and two together. Maybe just maybe just can't wrap his mind around being, and I know crucifer is the wrong word, but I, I just like saying the word crucifer. Um, I don't know that he can wrap his mind around being the crucifer in this situation here. Someone who would kill someone else, regardless of... What follows So maybe he just wasn't thinking about it Maybe his mind was elsewhere I mean, he did just get run down by Magneto For being kind of a stick in the mud and a failure <laughs> But uh, he blows Lost off So, into the Crucible we go Lost is absolutely destroyed by Magneto Magneto is just I mean, he is just shivering in delight With this opportunity, which is troubling Right? Um, as Nightcrawler put it, not quite as troubling as the adulation and roar of the crowd, which is very, very true. But we do see Nightcrawler watching this, and he even interferes. And like I said, I really wish they would have had the crowd boo him to try to interfere, but uh, they didn't. But he sees what happens here, and it's clear to him from what Lost says while she's in the Crucible that, oh, she wanted me to do the favor. Now, I don't have to remind anyone that Kurt is Catholic, and as a fellow Catholic, I know what guilt is. So, uh, I figure this is something that is going to weigh on Kurt. And as we saw in his nightmare, uh, he, all he did was hear the voice of Lost. You're one of the kindly ones. You're one of the kindly ones. Which haunted him, because rather than uh, do the favor, put her out of her misery, I guess, uh, because we do find out, and I neglected to mention this during the synopsis, but... Her being warped without her powers caused her great and constant pain. So this would have been 
I mean, for lack of a better term, uh, sort of a mercy killing, putting her out of pain uh, so that she can come back fully powered and without pain. But Kurt didn't do that, and instead she had to be run down by a magnetic maniac who... I mean, this felt like... This felt like the Magneto of old, in a way, where he was getting his frustrations out, uh, his good guy frustrations, in a way that wouldn't get him sent to the hole, you know? This was part of the job, and it just seemed like part of the job he was enjoying just a little bit too much. Um, Let's go back to Pixie here, we'll work our way through the story, and... um, I know I dwelled on it perhaps a little bit too much during the synopsis, but the discontinuity between the Pixies, I feel that's very important. Um, and it was done, like I said, very, very subtly, and it wasn't like a huge, huge change in her life. It wasn't like she learned how to fly an airplane, and now she doesn't know how to fly an airplane when she came back. This is, I like whatever the hell a cheese toasty is, rather than sushi. And when she comes back, no, no, I still like sh- sushi. Because she hadn't developed the craving or hadn't just changed her mind yet in, uh, in the interim between her last Cerebro backup and her death. Which, at least to me, illustrates that, that this isn't as seamless as I think we're supposed to. Which I think the Krakoans are supposed to just turn their brains off and see this as a seamless sort of thing. You die, you're back. No big deal. No worries. You're fine. And we've seen with Domino wanting to come back with all of her trauma and being brought back without her trauma. And uh, we thought about that and how that was less an accident of Cerebro backup and more a a deliberate decision by uh, whoever was in charge of her uh, resurrection. They didn't want her back with the trauma because she would be less useful with the trauma, right? So we think that there were, or at least I think, there was maybe... Maybe a ghost in the machine there, right? Someone who wears a great big Cerebro helmet on their head decides to maybe uh, maybe dial back the domino a little bit. Here, though, nobody's trying to take cheese toasties out of Pixie's mouth. This is just a reality of the resurrection protocol where you're not getting the full person. It's a... Uh, it's interesting, and I love the fact that we actually see it here on the page. It was done very, very subtly. We're not beating over the head with it, despite the fact that I'm beating everyone over the head with it right now. Just beautifully done. Beautifully done issue. Um, I can't wait for more. I absolutely cannot wait for more. Um, I've heard conflicting reports that this is an ongoing aura miniseries. Though in fairness, it is Marvel, where I think it's safe to assume everything <laughs> is a miniseries. But uh, I hope this... Uh, I hope this goes on for a long time, and I hope I hope we get more of uh, this real subtle shifting in observations, where Nightcrawler is, I mean, he's the Bob Newhart here, right? He's the only sane person in the room, where everyone else is ready to party, ready to just have a good time, forget about all the bad, not even pay any mind to negative and Nightcrawler's here being the uh, the stick in the mud here, the guilty Catholic who has to wonder and has to ask and has to uh, labor and uh, litigate these uh, these things that are going on before him. So, wonderful issue, if I haven't made that clear. Uh, the art was also very, very, very good. Really good. Bob Quinn really nailed it here. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. This might get one of my highest recommendations since we started the show. So uh, if you haven't read Way of X, do yourself a favor. 
check it out. If you have misgivings about the direction of the Hox, Pox, Dox, Rock, Sox era, in that, hey, these characters are acting weird, Way of X addresses that. And doesn't so much lampshade it, but tells us that, yes, you were right to notice this, you were right to be bothered by this, and uh, don't worry, because uh, we're going to address it in a way. So I don't know what way they're going to do it, but I'm excited to get there. So like I said, if you haven't read this, do yourself a favor. If you're waiting for Marvel Unlimited, you, you've got a treat coming. You've absolutely got a treat coming. If you can't wait for Marvel Unlimited, drop the five bucks. It's uh, definitely worth it. I don't think you'll regret it one bit. But that's all I got to say about this issue, though I spoke for about 40 minutes on it. Let's get into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about... He's giving us a, a one-two punch here. He's talking about X-Men 18 and 19. This is the uh, in-and-out-of-the-vault issues here. Damien says, I'm going to comment on both 18 and 19 as one, because I read them in one sitting, and they really are a single story. I'll be honest, I walked away from these issues unsure of what to think. In many ways, there was very little story. Even though the issues encompassed hundreds of years, not all that much happened. In fact, I was looking forward to hearing how you responded, as I wasn't sure how I felt. And I think we're in uh, agreement here. Definitely, because... Like you said, a lot of time passed, hundreds of years, right? That was the, the whole gimmick here, is that time is immeasurable in the vault here. Uh, not even like a one-to-one or a one-to-five sort of comparison between uh, real time and uh, vault time. So, Lord only knows how long we were in there. But, as you say, I mean, we found out that, like, a list of things happened. And this was classic Hickman tell-don't-show. It was just like, oh, well, then then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Well, I uh, don't really know what to think about that because we didn't get to live it, you know? And I think I mentioned this when we talked about these. It's like, you know, you could call me up on the phone and I can tell you about the worst day in my life, you know? This is what happened to me on my worst day or this is what happened to me on my best day. And you'll be there and you'll be like, oh, that's too bad or, oh, that's great because you didn't live with the, the the stories. You didn't live inside the stories. You're just hearing a recitation of events. That's what this co- these comics were. It was mostly info pages and graphs, and it was uh, very, 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 very sparse on actual story. Uh, Damien continues, Ultimately, it's very true that the X-Men have created their own villains this time around. The Children of the Vault will be a bigger threat because of who the Krakoans sent in to investigate them. That is definitely more interesting than the likes of Horticulture. You are right that Hickman seems to spend most of his time on setup and very little following through. It's probably a good thing that it's Jerry Duggan who will be writing future stories with Sink and Laura, as we can trust him to bring the feelings rather than just assert a relationship. That's excellent. I love the way you, you, I love the way you worded that. Uh, There's something really creepy about the idea of a faded relationship, and you can be sure that Laura will rebel against any element of predestination, as that has been a cornerstone of her character since she took on the name Wolverine. Couldn't have said it better. Couldn't have said it better at all. Um, Starting with Hickman doing the setups here, I mean, he's a great idea guy. That's something I will give him. The idea of what we're dealing with here... I, I hate using the word genius because I think that's one of those words that the internet has absolutely destroyed. But there is cleverness to the story we're being told. There is a measure of originality and novelty to it. So the ideas are good. The ideas are solid. It's just that the follow-through either doesn't happen 
or it takes so long to happen that by the time it does happen, we're kind of over it, right? I mean, this very vault story, it took over a year to get to the second part of it. It's like, I was kind of done with that. <laughs> you could have just, I mean, like I said, Hickman does the tell, don't show. You could just, uh, you could just have Laura, Sink, and Darwin show up again and be like, oh yeah, we're done in there. <laughs> and that could have been, that could have been it. Now you mentioned that um, Hickman asserts relationships here. It's basically, let's stand two people together and we'll tell people that there are feelings there from one to the other, from both to each other. Whichever the case, we're just told things. We're told that this is important. This is something you need to watch. But there's no heart there. You know, we don't have any reason to invest here. All we saw on panel between Sink and Laura was they, they were huddled up. Uh, like in one single panel. It's like, okay, they persevered and they hugged. And it's like, well, that doesn't tell me that there was a relationship. It gets kind of clarified at the end there when... uh. When Laura kind of, like, snicked in uh, Everett's direction. <laughs> but uh, it really just doesn't... Um, it's very empty. It's very, very empty. So, yes, Jerry Duggan coming in with Laura and Everett on his team. I am... I, I have all the confidence in the world that he will make a deliberate effort to make this matter. To pick up the pieces of this, um, you know, predestined and asserted and very hollow relationship and make it something more. Uh, Damien continues, I find it unbelievable that you've had pushback from Hickman fans. If anything, I think you're often too generous to him. I know I can stomach a text page better than you. I imagine that's because I loved Five Years Later Legion, which was full of them, but I'm much more critical of Hickman than you. I think he's often given a pass because we know he has an elaborate plan, but ultimately you have to judge the comic in front of you, not some endless tapestry. Hickman style is not an excuse to waste my money. And yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, Not so much anymore, because I'm pretty sure the people who would just come at me with Hickman style probably stopped listening ages ago. Because I'm trying to think if we've had very many positive, um, positive Hickman issues. Uh, I can think of the solo with Mystique and the Crucible. And other than that, it was uh, a lot of setup, a lot of attempts at humor, and not much more than that. So uh, I'm pretty sure anybody who was of the Hickman-style uh, bent was, uh, has dropped this show a long, long time ago. Which is a true shame, because I was hoping that we'd be getting feedback from people who thought differently about this, uh, about this run. You know, people who maybe can enlighten me as to why they liked certain things or why they didn't like certain things that I liked, and we have a conversation. I was hopeful for that, but um, uh, this is the internet. So <laughs> if you disagree, you just plug your ears and be like, nope, 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 don't want to hear it. So I'm guessing they're probably long gone. That said, I totally agree with you that every issue, despite being part of, as you put it, as you perfectly put it, an endless tapestry. This story, we don't know if it's going to be three years, four years, five years, five years from now. We don't know how long this story is going to go. So I guess we can say it is um, indefinite, right? It's, it's until it's done and not a moment sooner. But we have to be able to get something out of each issue. It doesn't have to add so much to that tapestry, but it has to be something that can be read satisfyingly, something that can be enjoyed or appreciated or just outright understood. And uh, you know me, I always, I always rattle on about the money. I always rattle on about the cover price here, where 
Like, if it takes us four issues to get to, like, the meat and potatoes of a story, it's like, well, we're like $20 into this thing now. So, too little, too late. You know, that's kind of how I judge things, right or wrong. So, your point is very well taken, and I agree 100% here. Hickman style might be, might be great. You know, it might be something that we'll look back on and be like, wow, that was great. Everything made sense here. But this is a serially told story, and every every step of it should be enjoyable, understandable, and appreciatable, rather than just like, yeah, don't complain about that because it will make sense. Well, how, how about we have, like, nebulous things and things we can enjoy, right? I don't want to do. I don't want to take prereq classes to to understand this thing, especially when they're four to five dollars a pop. Damien wraps up with, "Well, until Chris starts to produce diagrams instead of podcasts, make mine X labs, and and diagrams look like they're fun to make, don't they? They look uh, they look pretty fun. They look uh, kind of easy. <laughs> if I were to ask my wife, that might be better. That might be time better spent, right? Just to spend a half hour on that a day and not worry about anything else. The wife might be uh, completely on board with me shifting to diagrams. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about that two-parter, Damon. I was really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it because that's, like you said, it's one of those stories that uh, you don't really know how you receive it. You know, you don't know how you feel about it at a at a narrative level. At a meta level, we could be like, well, this was too expensive. This wasted too many pages. This didn't tell a story. But narratively speaking, it's like, well, what made sense? Did this make sense? Is there anything we can take with us here? So... I was, uh, I was fairly confused myself. So uh, thank you so much for writing in. Now, our next email is relevant. It's relevant here. We're actually doing a, uh, I think the, uh, the techno folks call this day and date, right? Uh, even though I, I hate that phrase. I think it's a very silly phrase. We're going to have a letter from Andrew Franklin talking about Way of X number one. How about that? I haven't read this letter yet because I didn't want anything spoiled for me. But uh, Andrew says the following. It seems like I've been waiting for this book to come out since I first jumped into this Krakoa era, and likely you feel the same. Finally, the big interesting questions are being looked at, and I think Nightcrawler is the perfect lens to look at them through. He's always been one of my favorite X-Men, even though in my formative X-Years he wasn't even on the team. I really enjoyed that this is, a, this is firmly a Nightcrawler book. I also appreciated that this issue is basically a comic that says to the reader, quote, I agree with you, some of this stuff is really messed up, unquote. Yes, yes, uh, we've been waiting for this since, since at least, you know, House of X number five, right? Um, this is... This is like vindication here. Uh, they, they agree with us, you know. This is some messed up stuff, and hey, we get it. We get it. You guys have you guys have dealt with it. You deserve some answers or at least some questions. And here we go, right? Um, and I, I'm in the same boat as you here. I've always thought Nightcrawler was a really cool character. When I started, he wasn't on the X Men. He was an Excalibur, though uh, somewhat importantly, I would say, um, he was part of the first uh, line of Toy Biz X-Men action figures. So, and, and I think he was one of the first that I ever got. The first I did get was Storm, because um, Storm was a girl, and nobody wanted a girl action figure. I, I know that might sound insensitive or uh, close-minded, but um, I've to- I think I've told this story before where... I went to a place called Cheap John's uh, back in, uh, in Long Island, 
And this is like a closeout store, like a Big Lots or a, a f- maybe like a Five and Dime or something. Just like a, a last chance store where stuff that, like overstocks go there. And they're sold at a deep, deep discount. And I was also a paper boy. I've told that story before, I'm pretty sure. I was a paper boy for New York Newsday. And in putting together the Sunday uh, circular section, you know, and when you were a paper boy, you'd get a bundle of newspapers and you'd cut them open, you'd do the thing, you wrap them up, yada, yada, yada. On Sunday, though, you'd get like several bundles of papers that you have to basically assemble this. So the Sunday paper, of course, is big, has full-blown sections instead of just like subsections. So you have the, the main news, you have the sports, you have the classifieds, you have the real estate, you have all that stuff. Then you have the ads. So you have like the supermarket ads, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the hardware store ads, all that kind of stuff. The TV guide is in there. And Cheap John's had one. And I remember looking at it as I'm putting together my paper bundles, and they had the X-Men figures there, and they were something like $2.50 each, which, I mean, is ridiculously cheap. I think at the time, if you were to go to, like, a Toys R Us, it would have been, like, a $5 per figure thing. If you bought them in a comic book store, it would have been, like, $12 a figure, because that's just how that works. But I saw two fifty, and I was like, oh, God, I, well, I got to get in there, right? I go in there. And the entire wall, and, I, and I'm not even exaggerating when I say this, uh, it had to have been a hundred Storm action figures. And I remember being so disappointed that, uh, not, not that it was just Storm there, I was, I was happy to get the Storm action figure, of course, I wanted them all. But it was just like, there's no Wolverine, there's no Cyclops, there's no Colossus, not a, no bad guys there, so it's like I bought the Storm figure for $2.50, and... Uh, I would later uh, pick up a Nightcrawler as a, I don't remember which store I went to for that, but a Nightcrawler was a second action figure I got. So I've always held him in uh, somewhat special regard, probably just, uh, just from that. Uh, Andrew continues. It's odd because it feels like not much really happens in this issue, but at the same time we get a lot to chew on. This, this issue felt like a TV pilot that's given extra runtime to set everything up, and I was happy to see it was longer than a normal issue, because I really do like what it sets up. Nightcrawler is the perfect character to call out things like the Crucible and the blasé treatment of full-on shotgun blasts to the face. And he adds, I hope Nightcrawler hasn't been reading, been reading X-Force. It's nice to see that he's been thinking about what all this immortality stuff means as much as we have, and I'm excited to read Kurt's personal journey through these moral questions as I am to see how it'll affect the mutant society as a whole. Absolutely spot on there, Andrew. It's, uh, Nightcrawler is... I, don't, I can't think of a better character to be our point of view for this book here. I mean, we, we, I joke about Catholic guilt all the time, but um, I mean, that's part of Nightcrawler's uh, gimmick, right? He's, he is the guy who kind of places a lot of responsibility on himself here. Um, and I don't know if he sees it as some sort of like a, a personal sort of thing to where, you know, I got to get to the bottom of this. I got to figure out what, what this is all about. Why have we changed this? Why don't we respect I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a Catholic here. Why don't we respect this gift from God uh, that is life? All we do is play with it. We play with it. We squander it. We throw it away. We don't value it. It's, uh, I mean, there's no one better for this than Nightcrawler. And I mean, Nightcrawler is a character that I don't know anybody who doesn't like Nightcrawler. So having him be our eyes and our ears and our, uh, our boots on the ground on Krakoa here is just absolutely pitch perfect. 
Andrew continues, uh, Magneto, in a melodramatic speech channeling his Bronze Age mutant supremacist mode, lists all the great accomplishments they've made in the first post-mortal society. Then he goes on to murder someone for blood sport while a large mutant crowd cheers. Is this Avalon? Asteroid M? I'm happy that Kurt shares my thoughts that this whole situation is really effed up and needs to be changed. It seems too easy to blame all the rottenness on some outside influence, this patchwork man in the surprise last page reveal, but I really enjoyed this issue and the next one, so I have faith that this story will be satisfying. Well, you have me at a disadvantage there. I cannot wait to read the next issue here. This is one of those times where... I've mentioned this before, where it's like it's hard not to go on. It really is hard to play this... uh, Play this the way I, I wrote it out to be, where I, I gotta <laughs> I gotta wait. But again, I, I totally agree with you. This is great Magneto here, where, as you put it, I mean, he's in this full-on you know soliloquy about all of their achievements and all of uh, eschewing violence in a way where it's like I you know I, I wouldn't do these missiles anymore. Crumple them up, and then we turn the page and he's killing someone for sport. While being cheered on, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, Andrew wraps up with, I'm writing this a few days before the Way of X episode drops, and I'm eagerly awaiting to hear what you have to say about it, which I presumably have if I hear you reading this. I dare say that I think you'll have enjoyed it. So until then, which is now, but not yet for me, (laughs) make mine X lapsed. Yeah, yeah, I like this one a little bit. (laughs) This was, uh... A hell of an issue, man. Uh, this was great, great stuff here. I really can't wait to get to the next one. I don't know. There was just, there, this such a satisfying issue. Um, and like I said, I have one complaint, and it's about the mushrooms on the head. I don't need to see that. But everything else, oh, I, I, I'm not big on the chef's kiss meme, but uh, if I were, I'd be giving one right now. But uh, that's where we're going to leave it for the mailbag here. If uh, anybody would like to write in and, uh, and chat us up about any of these books, uh, Way of X, or if you disagree with anything I said, please, please consider reaching out. I think we can have some very fun conversations here. You can find me several different ways. On Twitter at Ace Comics, uh, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. The little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on every noise aggregator on this grand internet. And uh, while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, and ask them to tell a friend or two, and so on and so forth. It would really, really mean the world to me. Speaking of which, it means the world to me that you'd spend uh, this uh, extended period of time with me today while I blathered on about this wonderful, wonderful issue. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. (laughs) 